Last winter, we had quite a lot of snow. In April, we were still navigating from building to building through narrow pathways that were dug into snow several feet high. The days were very bright and sunny, and it was remarkable to us that the snow was still there. On one day after our winter retreat, we were moving a very heavy carpet from one building to the other, which neither of us could lift. We managed to get it on a sled and we pulled it on top of the snow on the sled from the main house to the meditation hall. And then, by that afternoon, the snow was completely gone. We could not understand how that happened. Literally, from morning to afternoon, all gone. This is what we learned from a geophysicist about the mysterious melting of the snow. Melting is a non-linear process, which means that melting begets melting. Also, snow requires a lot of energy to change from ice to water. And this energy does not cause any change in temperature. What this means is that the snow can actually be above freezing without melting. If all the snow gets really warm over a few days when it's nice out, then it can melt all at once, really fast. As the melted snow starts to run through the unmelted snow, it helps to speed up the process. Then, when the ground appears, it absorbs much more sunlight, and the melting really speeds up. The melting of the snow has probably been happening for weeks, but we don't see it. It's unseen. And then the snow layer collapsed all at once. This sort of regime shifting happens all the time in the earth sciences. Things hold on the way they are, even in very unfavorable conditions. And then, at some invisible point, something snaps, and everything changes. Some scientists are worried that our climate might act like that, that it might all of a sudden change dramatically because of the way that we are forcing it. I found this analogy very relevant to our practice. The first parallel that stands out is melting is a non 
linear process. In the same way, following the Noble Eightfold Path is a non-linear process, which means that melting begets melting, just as waking up begets waking up. What does that mean? It means that as the defilements in the mind, such as greed, hatred, and delusion, melt away, the process of purification speeds up our ability to relinquish impurity. The melting of the hindrances just like the melting of the snow requires a lot of energy. It has to change from ice to water. That means it has to change from habit to letting go. But this energy does not cause any change in temperature. So that means that the energy in and of itself doesn't cause the melting to happen completely. And so in terms of our practice, that means that we can still hang on to our poor mental habits. We can still be stuck in ignorance, in our delusion, in our greed and our hatred for a long, long time. Even if we've done years and years of meditation, weeks and weeks of retreats, even though we've practiced for a long time, it can look like nothing has happened. That's because the defilements, like the snow, can hang on for a long time even in unfavorable conditions. They don't like the fact that we're working hard to melt them. But they hang on anyway. And we get frustrated, which they like. The next metaphor is this. The snow can actually be above freezing without melting. Just as the melted snow starts to run through unmelted snow and helps speed up the process of melting, in the same way, we use our effort to sustain mindfulness and diligence with ardor, devotion, and clear comprehension we keep working to prevent unwholesome states of mind from continuing. We try to remove them. We encourage wholesome states to arise and we try to sustain them. If we continue that process and give it continuous effort, then when even a little bit of the ground of awakening starts to appear, 
it has a profound effect on this process. Just like the sun-warmed ground that appears beneath the snow melt and shifts and speeds up the process dramatically. Still the defilements can hang on. But from underneath, within us, there is an invisible letting go of those impurities in the mind that we might not even notice. So we think that nothing is happening, but there is a subtle process going on. Just like when you have a shirt that's badly stained and you bleach it or you soak it, it'll get really clean. But a few stains will show themselves and we notice those stains more than anything. They capture our attention. We don't notice all the dirt that was washed away. We only notice what's left. It's the same with this process of letting go the defilements. We've worked so hard. We've made such a valiant effort. And still, there are impurities in the mind. And we're shocked to find them. So we get discouraged. And we even think we, we should give up. This doesn't work, we think. We forget. We don't remember how much we've already managed to clear, to cleanse, to purify, to settle, and how much we've been able to see and understand. The melting has probably been happening for weeks unseen. But the impurities have been melting and melting for months, for years even, or longer. We may even have been doing this for lifetimes. And then suddenly this layer of encrustation collapses. When the conditions are right and we reach a certain threshold, it falls away. The impurity dissolves. A door opens and understanding blossoms. There's a sudden, real, penetrating insight, a sense of realization. Something deep has been abandoned. But we have more work to do. So the impurities, like the snow, holds on even in unfavorable conditions. With the defilements, our ethical behavior, our sila, our samadhi, our panya, they are most 
unfavorable to the defilements. But for waking up, for awakening, for enlightenment, these conditions are very favorable. So we practice sila samadhi panya. And we have to remember to be patient, not to have expectations. And then one day, we will find ourselves understanding suffering, dukkha. We will know its origin, we observe it, we watch it end, we see it cease. And in this way, we're enabling the Eightfold Noble Path to rise up in front of us. The process itself may be non-linear, but we are relentless in our commitment to the path. Right view, right intention, right speech, right action right livelihood. How are we spending our time? How do we make our living? Are we doing the practice or are we just sitting? You remember Ajahn Chah gave the example of chickens who can sit. Well, we've sat many hours today, but what kind of work have we been doing? And how have we applied the mind during that time? The highest expression of our human nature is to purify the mind, to clear away the clouds, the sheets of snow, the ice that we're encased in, We are frozen in fear, in anger, in our opinions, in our judgments of ourselves and of each other. We are locked in. And we have to find the way to put the key in the lock, even when we feel shrouded in darkness. We have to do this. But to do this, we need to be able to feel our humanity, to feel our nature from the inside, not superficially, but from within, where the invisible factors of mindfulness, clarity, faith, energy, concentration, and wisdom can dismantle and dissolve years and years of deluded ways of perception, of relating to life. That's what this practice brings. Given enough patience and diligence, and we have to surrender to the process. It brings about a spiritual 
transformation within us. It's invisible. We don't know it right away. But after years, we begin to see. We see the changes in each other. We see the changes in ourselves. It's remarkable. When you're sitting with different states of mind arising and it seems endless, interminable, trust that this process works in some ways visibly, in other ways invisibly like the invisible melting of the snow beneath the crust of ice. It does work if we keep putting in the causes and conditions for mindfulness to arise, for diligence to develop, for contentment and gratitude to be there in the heart for generosity to be expressed, for concentration to mature, for wisdom to manifest. The results will take care of themselves. They know exactly when it's time. Trusting in the practice is key. We need to trust, to persevere with determination. And that involves giving up. Nekama, renunciation, is giving up. Not just shaving your head and wearing robes. That's not the real giving up. That's just on the surface. As a friend of mine once said, you have to shave your heart. We shave our heads once a week, but the hair grows right back. So we keep on doing it. It's a constant giving up. Giving up the pleasures of the senses. We want another hit, another dessert, another experience another kind of retreat. The mind is judging, evaluating, wanting, regretting, being angry, grieving, all of it. We're constantly turning and twisting through the contortions of our human life until we find that place where we can see through to our true nature and the pure mind comes into view like a bright moon or a brilliant sun. This is a complete letting go of the conditioned world, of things of conditioned experiences, 
of conditions in their worldly sense. And giving ourselves to that which is unconditioned. We give ourselves to it until it rises up inside us, within us. We cannot find the unconditioned out in the world. We'll never find it there. We can only know it in the heart. It arises from this very body, which is death-bound, which must be washed and cleaned and tended to, and that dirties the clothing we wear. Out of this dirt-producing, odor-producing body can come an awakened mind, transcendent beauty of mind. So we use this body. We respect it and honor it. Why? For the purpose of spiritual awakening. Not as a pleasure-producing entity, Our goal is not to squeeze out every last ounce of joy and pleasure from worldly things, but to finally arrive at that farther shore that we've been striving for. This is the meaning of the human journey for those those of us who are willing to trust and stick to the practice. When we allow the mind to get overexcited, overheated about things, the past or the future, we're deepening the groove of our mental bondage to allow anger to abide in the mind, to allow unwholesome states to pervade the mind, is like allowing Mara to sit on our backs. That will not help collapse the kilesas, the impurities of the heart. Everything is contained in these teachings. They're so vast. My revered teacher, Sayara Upandita, the Burmese meditation master, always told me, don't read the books. First, read your heart. If we study our own hearts, we will find that everything is written there. Everything. And if we study the suttas, 
we can hear the Buddha's words and they will encourage us to keep practicing. Even when daggers have been thrust into our hearts, when we've experienced the most painful thing imaginable, like a mother or a father losing their own child, we can still find peace through this practice. We do this by investigating the very ground of our being. And we discover that there is no being in there. No solid being that we can call me or mine. Even in the face of terrible loss, we can see through the pain to the ending of pain. Not only for ourselves, but for all beings. That's what our journey represents. It represents the possibility of going to the highest Everest of the spiritual realm. That might seem impossible from where we sit now. But we have to trust this process. And like the sudden vanishing of the winter snow, it's magnificent. Nothing short of that. So I offer you these reflections for tonight.